Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. Okay, here's what's been on my heart. Ever since the youth revival renewal, ever since the youth revival and renewal services that we have on the opening night when I prayed about what to speak and share with the youth, I had the opportunity to open it, and I talked about probably the thing I talk about with individual believers more often than not, and I talked about unforgiveness. This morning's teaching is going to be just simply entitled, A Primer on Unforgiveness. About once every four or five years, I will do a seven or eight-part teaching on unforgiveness. I believe passionately there is nothing, nothing Nothing, no single issue that more greatly hijacks people of faith, but people individual, individually, even if they're not people of faith, but disrupts our life and hijacks our life than unforgiveness. And I believe as the reason I turn to that for the student <clears throat> is we live in a cancel culture. And if you are not aware of what that term means, and perhaps if you're Uh, over 50 or 60 or something, you may not be familiar with it. I'll leave it up to you to Google it and find out what that means. But we live in a culture of unforgiveness. Listen to me. That um, certain philosophies of life advance if you are in the wrong place, wrong race, wrong gender, wrong whatever. You are hopelessly part of a system or a culture from which there's no release. And you're just sort of canceled. If you have an opinion about something, you're canceled. There's no way back. By any other definition, we live in a day and age when unforgiveness has been absolutely systematized on social media. Please hear me. You don't have to shout me down on that. I'm not one of those, uh, the sky is falling prophet types. I'm telling you, just articulating the current state of culture. Having said that, And in the recent months, once again, seeming an onslaught of people trapped in unforgiveness, let me say this. I'm going to go through this. There's going to be several call-outs, seven or eight, that you can take pictures of. And each of them are representing probably a different aspect of the teaching on on unforgiveness. I would like to schedule, I don't know, maybe a, a Wednesday night, a series of Wednesday nights, um, and if you're interested in that, my email is tom at newhopeonline, tom at newhopeonline. You can snap a picture of that, or you can, it's not that hard, it's newhopechurch, newhopeonline.com. I would really like for you, if you would, even while you're sitting there right now, to send me a message and say, I would be interested in participating in that series or little sort of seven or eight part conference on unforgiveness. Um, and I'm not saying that everyone who will respond is desperately in need of, unfor- uh, to, of uh, or forgiveness or dealing with unforgiveness, but you may be around someone, have a family member or a friend who's just trapped in it. <clears throat> and if you don't know if they are, hopefully by the time we get to the end of the teaching, you'll be able to recognize certain things for what they are. Because here's the deal. Often people who live in unforgiveness have lived that way so long they've relabeled it something else. They don't even know it for what it is. It's become absolutely a virus in their life. It's just a part of who they are, okay? Enough said. Now, let me just jump into this from the beginning and make several statements. Unforgiveness is ultimately a worship problem. 
Unforgiveness is ultimately a worship problem. Just leave that up there if you would for a moment, Amanda. Worship around here, I'm going to, again, all of this is summary, so hang with me. Worship around here, we understand worship no matter where we find it in Scripture or any of the original languages. Worship is best understood by what shapes my worth or worth shaping, worth-ship, worth-ship, worth-shaping worship. It comes from an old English word, and it's the most wonderful container term for understanding worship, I believe. And here's the unique thing that I, I, I was sharing a devotional there that I never have said it quite this way, that if you, and I'll just pick one, if material possessions and wealth uh, are the most important things to you, then how much of it you have will determine what your sense, where your sense of worth is found. If relationships are that, then you may go through many, but still not be fulfilled. And ultimately, you will never be fulfilled in finding your worship outside of God. But here's the thing that struck me this week that I need to write down in my own notes when I said it to this group of <clears throat> um, uh, disaster relief team. We're doing a morning devotion. That, that, that the difference between the things that we pursue that inform our worth and God pursuing us to inform our worth is that worship is defined, for instance, I could fill in the blank with many things, with material wealth by how much of it I possess. Worship of God is determined by how much of me he possesses. I want to say that again. Worship of everything else is determined by how much of it I possess Worship before God is determined by how much of me he possesses. We got that? Okay, because you'll never possess all of him, and that's very good news. Very good news. Number one, unforgiveness is ultimately a worship problem. And let me just mention this scripture, Matthew, 20, Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. <clears throat> Therefore, if you're presenting your offering, or in present-day terms, if you're going to church... You're going to church, you're offering at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, or I can give you additional scripture that says you have something against him. Leave your offering before the altar, go and go. First be reconciled, everybody say reconcile, to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Have you ever wondered why, right? This verse of scripture just gives us the basis. Have you ever wondered why standing here in a worship service, you will very often have come to mind People that you have ought against, it just seems to fly in out of nowhere. Can I explain to you why? Because this is an environment where you are declaring your primary source of worth before principalities and powers and before the throne of God. And what happens in that exchange is the very first thing that happens when the Spirit engages our point of unforgiveness is it points out to us where we're really trying to find our worth and not God. And that's why. I'm telling you, why? In worship services, you'll have come to mind out of nowhere. You haven't thought of it in a week or a month or a year. And all of a sudden, boom, that thing that happened a lifetime ago that's still hanging out in your heart. You wonder why it appears. This verse tells us, it says, if you're on your way to worship and you remember, and again, there's a reason why we remember, because it's a battle of worth. It is a battle of what informs our worth. Let me move on ahead. Make another statement. Here's where I want to really hang out. Mercy, and what does mercy have to do with it? <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and say this. And I want to be very careful. 
Mercy is God's initiative to make grace accessible to us. Mercy is God's initiative. Now, just leave that up there, please, Amanda. Mercy is God's refusal to join me in my opinion of me, or anyone's opinion of me, above his opinion of me. And we've studied that at length. I can send you links on that teaching. We talk about it a lot. I wore my mercy shirt on purpose this morning. Mercy is God refusing to join us in any opinion of me above his opinion of me. And that's really good news. And therefore, in contradistinction, sin is the point at which I embrace any opinion of me above his opinion of me. Watch. What's the answer? Then confession is the point at which I embrace his opinion of me above his opinion of me. Excuse, above my opinion of me. And this little thing overlaps, and it's just a powerful thing, which is why confession is not something we do once a week uh, when you go into the confessional or you come to church. It's a constant state and posture before God. A constant state of saying, Father, you're the source of my worth. Okay? Enough about that. I want to jump right into Matthew 18. This is the primary passage of Scripture we'll be looking at, verses 21 through 35. Peter steps up to speak, the Apostle Peter, before he was the Apostle Peter. I always say I'm so thankful for him because he asked every, almost every stupid question that I have ever thought or could think of asking, and I'm so glad it was him and not me that everybody reads about, all right? Then Peter came up to him, that's Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, sidebar I want to point out is every sin is ultimately against God and not against me. In other words, if there's a sin, it's a sin against God. And that's why God says, I'm the only one that can deal with that. Watch this. Including the transgression that happened against you. It's a sin. It was a sin. It is a sin. But ultimately, only God can deal with it, not you, so don't put yourself in God's place. Now, <clears throat> Jesus responds. By the way, seven was sort of the going rate. I, if, if we get to that seminar, I'll unpack why in the ancient Near Eastern culture, why for Peter to say seven times was a declaration of his spiritual sort of piety and nobility, saying, I'm prepared to forgive seven times. And Jesus sort of blows it out of the water, and he says, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That does not mean 490. It was a rhetorical statement. If he would have said 10, he would have said a thousand times 10 or a million times 10. He was just saying, no, <clears throat> it's endless. And forgiveness is endless. And, and we'll explain why in a moment. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought in. In today's currency, that's somewhere north of $8 billion. Jesus used a number that was so astronomical and extreme in its number, the, 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 his disciples who were listening would have gone, oh, you know, that's just an insane amount of money, more than all the taxes in all of the Roman provinces collected over the course of 10 years. It was a, just a crazy, crazy amount of money, all right? So he said one brought him in that owed him this crazy amount of money, but since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold. Everybody say sold. It's an important aspect. That's one of the teachings right there. The power of unforgiveness to buy my soul. Don't have time to go into that today. But if you want to know more about it, send me an email, Tom at New Hope Online. I'm going to say that to you about 10 times, okay? 
uh, commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Now watch this. Isn't it amazing? Because we're, this whole narrative is about unforgiveness. It is perhaps the singularly most referenced passage of Scripture on unforgiveness um, in, in all the Bible. And so we're headed towards the story of unforgiveness. And let me give away the end. Isn't it amazing how an unforgiving person, it just affects the environment of their own home, their relationship with their spouse and their children? Enough said about that for the moment. We'll talk more about it in the future. So the slave fell down and prostrated himself. That's a word for worship, by the way. A ton to be taught there. Before He prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion. Now, we're going to find out what that really was at the end of the story. That felt compassion. I'll go ahead and insert mercy here for a reason. And released him and forgave him the debt. Amazing. But that slave went right out, found one of his other slaves, uh, uh, fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about eight to ten thousand dollars in today's currency. Not a small amount of money, but compared to eight billion, how many know it's not even a drop of water out of the ocean? Everybody got that? Okay, so he goes out, and the uh, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, seized him, and began to choke him, saying, "Pay back what you owe." His fellow slave, in verse twenty, now fell down and began to plead with him, saying. The identical term uh, that was quoted in verse 26. 29 and 26 are identical phrases. In other words, this slave, the second slave, is about to repeat the same words slave number one had said to the great Lord. Here it comes. He fell to the ground, began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, watch this, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had, here it comes, mercy. He said, he, so everybody got this? He said, I had mercy on you. I gotta show you something, everyone pay attention. When slave number one fell down and said, I want to worship you on the basis of my debt, because ultimately, this is a picture of Father God, Jesus Christ, and us in our relationship of redemption and forgiveness that we get by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what ultimately this story is about. So he, watch, he falls down and he says, I want to have a relationship with you that's based on my debt. I will worship you based on what I owe you. Listen to me, beloved, and the, the great Lord that is the, again, the, the, the stereotypical uh, or uh, uh, the picture of God and Jesus Christ in this picture says, you will never worship me on the basis of debt. Did you know there are people sitting in this room who have a religious and legalistic posture towards God because of debt they they owe or this or God on never and they come back every time. Lord, I'm so sorry for what I did a hundred years ago and I'm so sorry for this and I come back to you. God doesn't hear it. He says, I don't want you to relate to me on the basis of your debt because I paid for it. And this is a story of ultimately him saying, I paid a debt you could not pay. That beloved is mercy. I'm refusing to join you in your opinion of you based on your debt and failure because you asked me for forgiveness. I have freely given it. 
That is mercy. And I want to tell you again, mercy is God's initiative to get us to grace. Can I go ahead and just throw out one more statement here? We've been studying transformation, and this, this that I'm about to say is going to be added to the teaching on unforgiveness. And I'm going to tell you this. Transformation is impossible with unforgiveness in your heart. Transformation is impossible with unforgiveness in your heart. Unforgiveness is a self-imposed prison. Unforgiveness makes us stuck in a place of torment where we can't move forward. I'm just going to keep going forward, okay? Where did I leave off? Fellow slave Saul. Should you not have also, verse 33, had mercy on your fellow slave the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now that, by our economy, we can't pay. Handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly father my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, I want you to look at me, please. I do not believe that unforgiveness, I need, when I get down on my knees like this, it's me wanting to look everybody in the face one at a time. I do not believe that unforgiveness renders positional or eternal mercy null and void. In other words, you can hold unforgiveness in your heart and make it all the way to heaven. Um, you will live miserable and tormented. It'll come out of your pores of your skin. I'll get to that in a moment. I do believe that it blocks functional and progressive mercy, dynamic. In other words, you live trapped in your own bondage. You live, as we'll get to, trapped in your own opinion above God's opinion of you. And the Bible said, simply put, that's called torment. Let's read it. Okay. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers. Everybody say torturers. That's the word to, for uh, until he should repay all that was owed. That word for torture is the same one we get tormentors, the word torment from. So shall my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother. I need to speak, skip ahead real quickly, Amanda, in those verses. If you would look at with me at, where did I put that? I may not have forgotten because it was a late edition this morning. But if you could put up, um, is it Luke 16 that I sent you about the rich man and Lazarus? Because I didn't, I didn't remember to include it in my notes. Okay. In the rich man and Lazarus, it's a parable Jesus tells in the book of Luke. And it's about the rich man who would pass by this poor man, Lazarus, not to be confused with Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha that Jesus resurrected. Different Lazarus. This was a poor man, and the rich man would pass him. The poor man would beg for crumbs of his table, and the rich man ignored him. And I don't want to tell the whole story. What I want to get to is the part where when they both died, one went to be with God, the other went to Hades. And then this verse happens. In Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment. That's the same Greek term used. That word torment, watch how it's used alongside of mercy, because... In the Matthew 18 passage, we see the only place in the Bible where mercy and torment are listed together. I'm going to build that bridge. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away. That's speaking spiritually, Father Abraham in a spiritual dimension. And Lazarus in his bosom. 
And he said, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, here it comes, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus has bad things, but now he's being comforted here, and you and your agony, here it comes. And besides this, between us there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you are not, will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. He was in a place of torment. Lazarus was in a place of mercy. Abraham says, mercy can't reach you where you are. Beloved, I've got to say this and move on. The only other place where these two words show up in tandem in Scripture is back in Matthew 18. When, when Jesus told what the great Lord said, he said, should you not have also had mercy? And then he said, I turn you over to the tormentors to be tormented until you should repay all that was owed. Functionally, he was put in a place where mercy could not reach him. I want to say this, and then I'm going to move on. Mercy put, unforgiveness puts us in a place where mercy can't reach us. If you want to meet the most miserable people on the planet, find someone who has not forgiven. There is a cynicism, sarcasm, negativity, nastiness, and I'm talking about children of God. Watch their words, watch their heart, watch how they respond, watch the posture of their worship. They get into a debt and repayment situation. It is consistent. I have lived long enough, as David said, to see, the King David said, to see several things. I have seen it happen over and over and over and over again. I have seen it in pastors and preachers. I have seen it in denominational leaders. I have seen it in us. I have seen it in my own heart. And I tell people if there's anything that I excel at, and I'm not bragging, it is forgiveness. I don't do unforgiveness. I don't do unforgiveness because, beloved, if this may sound arrogant, it's not because I'm asserting my spirituality. It's because I understand what it does. And I'm not going to put myself where God's opinion can't get to me. I need God's opinion more than any other opinion. And I will not put myself. Matter of fact, as Brenda was saying, quoting from 1 Corinthians about coming to the table of the Lord, where he said, don't drink in an unworthy fashion or in a position that fails to embrace the full worth of God. God, can I tell you this at risk, at risk of sounding legalistic, it is not. You absolutely neutralize the power of the blood of Jesus Christ when you come to this table with unforgiveness in your heart. I don't mean positionally and for eternity. I am not telling you you're going to hell. I don't believe that to be the case. But in terms of knowing the dynamic vibrancy of a present mercy active in your life from day to day and moment to moment, it's not there. It is not there. And you're left in a merciless faith. Okay, I won't chase the 17 rabbits that are running around in my head, okay? Everybody say forgiveness, forgiveness. Reconciliation, reconciliation, and trust. Those are the biggest questions that I get, and the Bible deals with all three of them. Forgiveness has to do with what happened and my past, Reconciliation has to do, in terms of the relationship, I'm dialing in on this. 
in terms of the relationship, forgiveness has to do with where I've been in that relationship and the past. Reconciliation has to do with where I am and the present. And trust has to do with where I am going in that relationship and the future. Now, let me show you how this works. Because there are people who have harmed you, spoken to you. You may live with someone. I'm not making a joke that does that. That the moment you begin to create some space for a good reason, they will say, but I thought you were a Christian. So let me explain this. Forgiveness happens because, and, I, and, I, and again, here, all three of those are one of the teachings, points of teachings and understanding that we go through and we dig in deeply. So you're going to have to just accept my, my biblical synthesis in this next statement. Forgiveness says you do not have to repay me what I deserve because you cannot. Only God can. This is so important. I need everyone together to read that off the screen right now. Forgiveness says... We've all suffered. People tear off of... We've all had a piece of our heart taken away. Jose, please come here. Just take that away right there if you would. Mason, come here, son. Jose's done me wrong. And he found a person he didn't even know named Mason. And Mason took a piece of my heart again. This, by the way, this is another separate teaching altogether that has to do with the holiness of God. Only God can make holy. The problem is when my heart's been ripped away and I know that he took the piece that fits there and he took the piece that fits here, I begin to look for him to bring it back because after all, it's wrong. And until you bring it back and make it whole, justice hasn't happened. Are you aware that justice and a mercy appear together in scripture all the time? That there was just a loaded statement. Won't chase the rabbit. So I live in an orientation towards him and towards him saying, I won't be made whole until that person brings back that piece of my heart. But the only problem is if I live with that, even if I can leverage that person to somehow do what I think needs to be done, I end up with a Frankenstein heart sewn together with ugly stitches that never works. Because there's only one being, according to Hebrews chapter 8, that says, and Ezekiel 36, I have the power to give you a new heart, a brand new heart, and that is only God. Lord, give me direction right here. Okay. Anyhow, here's what happens. Again, having been in ministry 40 years and counseled thousands of people and hundreds of marriages and hundreds of divorces, you want to know why people marry the same type of person over and over again? Because I have enough sense if you were my husband, wife, or whatever, and you took a piece of my heart away, and I know you should bring it back, and I know you should make it right, but I'm not dumb enough to marry you. But when I'm insulated from mercy, I'm living by my opinion, and I go find someone just like them unwittingly unwittingly, you want to know why they the same, marry the same type of person again and again and again, because we're living outside of mercy that can free us from the bondage that says you have to have someone just like that, that can fix that instead of coming to God and saying, they can't fix a stinking thing. Only you can. Somebody needs to hear me. Any couple that has been married, divorced and getting remarried, I go into depth on this. And say, we need to make sure. That's it, gentlemen. Thank you very much, okay? 
Now, so forgiveness is saying you do not have to repay me what I deserve because you cannot, only God can. In other words, you can't make my heart whole, only he can. I'm going to skip past reading the scripture from Romans 5 about reconciliation, but it means to make at one. Reconciliation, once my heart has received forgiveness from God, I get at one from God. My heart becomes one again. He gives me a new heart. So, um... Um, reconciliation is this. It has to do with where I am now and how the relationship is. Everybody see it? I will not repay you what you deserve because I cannot, only God can. Remember, forgiveness is you will not repay me what I deserve because you cannot, only God can make me whole. And I will not repay you what you deserve Because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Only God can. And see, ultimately, unforgiveness, here's a whole other teaching, is putting myself in the place of God. Old Testament passage, Old Testament Joseph. Not Joseph, the the father uh, of Jesus, husband of Mary, if you earthly father of Jesus, mother and and husband of Mary. But in the Old Testament, that one, the young 17-year-old that had dreams and his brothers despised him. They threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery, only for him to become the prime minister. In a time of famine, they don't even recognize the full-grown Joseph 17 years later, uh, 13 to 70 years later. And they come in, and Joseph finally walks in when they're there, and he says, I'm Joseph and they fall apart. And he says, don't grieve for what you've done. God sent me ahead to be a preserver of life. Only people who forgive can bring life. Unforgivers take it. I want to be a life preserver, not a life taker. Where Joseph sat and said, don't grieve. That word grieve, this is a whole separate teaching as well, is the identical term translated idol. Not a cognate, not a derivative. When you make unforgiveness an idol, it takes life. Years later, after his father died, his brothers come back to them, chapter 50 of Genesis, and after the father died, they said, "Uh, we sort of thought that you're just being nice to us because dad's alive, and now that he's dead, are you going to do mean things to us and pay us back what we're really owed? And Joseph's response with these words that are not just poetic owed. Watch. Am I in the place of God? Unforgiveness is hell's attempt to make you God of that relationship. And when you do, you're worshiping you, not him. You've accepted your opinion above his opinion. That's all I got to say. Let me move on to that. Trust, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Says, for this reason I also suffer things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced or persuaded that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. It's a statement that says, I can trust him absolutely because of his death on the cross. I know what he's done for me. It's a statement about the nature of trust. So here comes the principle as we would apply it in our life. Remember, forgiveness in the relationship is about the past and where I've been. Reconciliation is about now and, and what I'm doing in this relationship now in the present. And trust is where the relationship is going. And here's the statement that we look at people who have recurrently or done what, whatever, and you look at them and say, I will trust you. I will trust you when you trust what I trust, and I trust God. I'm going to say that again. You see, a person that comes to you, and let me just give you one practical thing. 
If you live in a relationship where this person comes to you and right after you open your heart to them again, they unleash vitriol and words or whatever just to uh, uh, eviscerate you uh, with words, then stop trusting them with those words. You can still forgive them and you can still stand with them in reconciliation, but they don't have the capacity to be worthy of that trust. They are not the same, beloved, and don't be manipulated by hell into you going away and saying, man, if I was a real Christian, I would just trust them absolutely. Not true. God doesn't even do that. Please hear me. This is healthy. This is not vengeance. Now, you can use that phrase for vengeance if you want, but that's not what this is about. Unforgiveness puts me in a place where mercy can't reach me, and that is always tormenting. Now, having said that, I'm going to close right here. And I'm going to tell this dramatic portrayal again because it came back to my mind here. Only God has the ability to make whole, W-H-O-L-E, because only God is holy and lives in absolute immeasurable wholeness. He is the source of my worth that I can trust because he is whole and complete, lacking nothing, needing nothing. That is the definition of holy. It will always be beyond what we can define. And so we come to God and we're worshiping on a Sunday morning. I surrender all. I surrender all. All of a sudden, God begins to speak to us and said, Oh, my son, I wish that were true, but the unforgiveness in your heart is a declaration that you trust your opinion of them much more than you trust my opinion of them. You're trusting your opinion above my opinion. I surrender. God, I didn't come to talk about that today. I just want to worship you, Lord. I love you. See, because people who hold unforgiveness in their heart, I'm not saying they don't really love God and really want to know God. I'm saying unwittingly, the single greatest deception since the Garden of Eden is walking and living in unforgiveness. I need every pastor, elder, worship leader, person watching online to listen. None of us are exempt from this insidious virus that can find us in a moment. You're going to laugh at me. It can happen in traffic where you all of a sudden something happens because a person cuts you off and does something unjust. And we live in such a hyper justice culture exercised by our own definition of justice, of course, that before we get all of a sudden this ugly things happen where we're having to forgive a person we never even knew because they're, oh, bless God. I'm, I'm, <clears throat> anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, it can happen in a minute with somebody you don't even know, let alone those that you do know or have known. And we carry it forever and relabel it something else. Well, I'll forgive when they ask for it. By the way, you want me to throw something in here? Do you know it's possible? That's why it is possible to accept an apology and not be forgiven. Here's what I mean by that. Will you accept my apology? Yes, I will. Thank you. But then they act the same way. It is possible to accept an apology and not forgive. They are not the same. Accepting the apology is the invitation to that exchange. Forgiving is what you do in your heart on your side that removes them from the ability to inform what you're worth. As long as you hold it over their head, you're still saying, you're God above him. 
because I'm still waiting for you to do this series of things to make it right and make me feel better and make my heart whole. God said they can't do that. So here I am. I surrender all. God's responding to me. Tom, just let it go. Father, I, I just came to worship you. I don't want to talk about that. So some, I just, can we just move on? No, son, we can't because your source of worth is found right there. And it's in between you and me. I, I know God, but that's just, I, I, want to, I don't want to think about that now. We'll think about that later. I surrender. God says, no, we're going to talk about it right now. Tom, don't you understand that my son, Jesus Christ, I'm holding up this little communion cup. He shed his blood so that you could get back to me and be made whole. Yes, Lord, and I know. We'll even cry for tears right there. Yes, Lord, I know what your son did, and I am so humbly thankful for that. Uh, but, uh, Lord, uh, I, I, just, I, I don't want to talk about that now. Tom, just release that. By the way, forgive is an economic Greek term, aphiemi, that means to cancel the debt. It's an economic term. What sources the currency of your soul? It's right back to worth. It's all there. This is powerful, powerful stuff. Father, I love you, son. Uh, Tom, don't you know that my son paid the price so we could have this conversation? I do, Lord. But but, but that's not right. They need to make this right. I surrender all. But Tom, Tom, you need to release that um, because the blood of my son has covered you. I gave you the forgiveness from that blood. Just extend that blood over that too because it can cover that. It can heal that. It can heal your soul. Oh, I know, Lord, but, but it's just, you, you know, I serve, but, serve, but Tom, the blood of my son paid a debt you couldn't pay. Just rejoice and release that. Yes, Lord, I know, I, I, but they need to fix that. But I said, Tom, did you let it go? My son's blood, you were purchased not with silver or gold, but with the blood of a spotless lamb. Yes, Lord, I know. Uh, Tom, don't you know that? The, yes, Lord, I know. But, but Tom, yes, I know. But the cross isn't enough. I need that too. That's what unforgiveness screams in the face of the throne of God. The cross isn't enough. Two places in Scripture, God says, if you don't forgive, I can't. I just told you why. Not because he says, fine, you want to act like that? I'll give you an attitude back. That's not what God's doing. God is saying you are nullifying the very basis by which mercy and forgiveness might reach you. And you're stuck. You're stuck where mercy, you're stuck where mercy can't reach you. And we're sitting here. We're sitting watching online. And right now, worship team, please come back. That last song, nothing else will do. And I surrender all. Please hear me right now. This may be one of the heaviest messages I ever preach. And I never preach it, but that doesn't grab my own soul and wrench me. Not in pious, legalistic, crushing examination but in heart-opening, heart-rending worship. Father, I need your presence. 
more than I need my version of justice. Your son is enough. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will do. Father, I've carried this. Holy Spirit, right now, that song we've sung, open the window of our heart and let the light shine in. Father, there's old and young. Age doesn't create a barrier. Sitting here, sitting out there. And right now you are lovingly extending your hand and saying, step away. Just release it. They don't have the power to make you whole. Only I can. Only the blood of Christ. Would you stand to your feet, please? Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.